Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence. Okay, if we're going to recreate this old pic of us that mom posted, we've got to get the outfits right. Well, for some reason, I can't find gauchos with a matching shrug anywhere. Let me try on my Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. I just use the S Pen to circle the outfit in the post, and bam, five sites to buy it from right here. Shut up! How did you... You shut it. Mom's coming. Cute outfit. Get me one. <laughs> circle it, find it. With the new Galaxy S24 Ultra and circle the search with Google. Upgrade now at Samsung.com. Internet connection required. Results may vary based on visuals. It's Tuesday, March 14th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A Yale research group in concert with the U.S. State Department alleges that Russia has orchestrated what amounts to a massive kidnapping scheme. It's transported between 6,000 and 16,000 Ukrainian children beyond that country's borders into Russia. At the start of the war, this offer to remove children from a war zone was welcomed, or at least agreed to, by parents who just wanted their children out of harm's way. But now the Russians refuse to part with many of the children and are alleged to be actively indoctrinating them. In charge of this effort for the Russians, their presidential commissioner of children's rights, Maria Lvova Belova. Lvova Belova is in her mid-30s, a mother of 10 including at least five adoptees and a devout, she says, Christian. Here she is in a video put out by the Kremlin, a discussion between her and Vladimir Putin. What they're saying is, Vladimir, you adopted a child from Mariupol, right? And Lvova Belova answers, yes, thanks to you. Whoa, stop the tape. Thanks to you, thanks to your invasion of Mariupol. Well, I guess that's not what she means. Resume the tape, even though we can't understand the tape. It's in Russian. Lvova Belova. I know what it's like to be a mother to a child from the Donbass. It's not easy, but we definitely love each other. Putin. That's the important thing, right? The International Criminal Court thinks the important thing is that Lvova Belova broke international law. Reportedly, these charges against her, and maybe even Putin, will be the first charges brought by the court over the conflict in Ukraine. Arrest warrants will be sought, according to reporting by Reuters in the New York Times. Because it is a war crime to illegally transfer children across international borders during a conflict. CNN did a report on some of the mothers from Kyiv who allowed their children to be transported to safety during the siege of Kyiv. But now that Kyiv is liberated, Russia is treating the children as bargaining chips or hostages. Russia and their adoption lawyers. I was just getting my head around Natalia Veselnitskaya. You know, the one who met with Donald Trump Jr. and Trump Tower to talk adoptions, but also supposedly dirt on Hillary Clinton. And now we got Lvova Belova. When it comes to these Russian adoption offers, if it's what you say, I don't love it. It's unlikely we will actually see a trial in this case because the International Criminal Court does not try people in abstentia. And it's unlikely that officials from the court will be able to snatch up and detain Lvova Belova. That is in contrast to the thousands of Ukrainian children that the ICC's chief prosecutor says cannot be allowed to become, quote, the spoils of war. On the show today, the ratings are out, bank ratings and Oscars ratings. But first, March Madness dawns. So we reach out to Ken Vogel, 
a reporter for the New York Times who contributed to a large multi-part series on the risks of legalized sports gambling. Regulation, addiction, and politics, which are extremely important. Ken Vogel up next. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a little too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we quell. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. So let me bore you with a gambling story. I put a dollar down on the Memphis Grizzlies to face the Philadelphia 76ers in the NBA Finals. People were going crazy about Ja Morant. And so I said, oh, this is an opportunity to get in on it. If my dollar bet pays off, you ready? I win $220. It's the sort of story that if you don't like sports, you got immediately bored. And if you do like sports, you said a dollar. But the reason I could do this is because FanDuel's now legal in New York. And I'm an unusual type of sports gambler to the extent that I even am. I'm fascinated by it. I was once the editor of a magazine called Jack Ace Queen King, which was about gambling. I had the first ever podcast podcast for NPR called Mike Pesca on gambling as a subject. I'm compelled by it as a practice and activity. I'm more loss averse than addicted to really anything. So I guess I am uh, destined not to be a problem gambler, but man, am I fascinated with it. Now that we're in the middle of March Madness, I wanted to look at what the newly changed rules about legalized sports gambling mean to the landscape and to state economies. Ken Vogel is one of the New York Times reporters who wrote a long, big, authoritative series on the state of sports gambling in the U.S. He investigates the confluence of money, politics, and influence, started that beat on Politico, brought it to the Times where he's looking at sports. Ken, welcome to The Gist. Hey, it's great to be with you, Mike. What do you think? I know you like the Sixers. What do you think of my dollar bet? Yeah, I would have said that that sounds crazy at the beginning of the year, but it uh, looks like it could end up uh, better odds than you had at the beginning of the year, certainly, that, that you would get a much smaller payout if you place that bet now. That That is true. It is a, a $60 return now, 220 when I did it, when people were panicking about jobs. See how boring we've become? I've, I've forced you into this uh, little cul-de-sac of boredom. So let's talk about March Madness, however. You will often hear the estimates of how much money is to be wagered. But from reading your report, I know those estimates certainly serve the gambling or sports business. What's your um, analysis of when you hear those estimates just on March Madness? How much credence do you give them? Yeah, I, I do think that sports betting is extremely popular, but also these estimates do serve the industry's purpose. And, and the way that they serve the industry's purpose 
at least initially, was this sort of foundational argument that you, states, should legalize sports betting because it's already happening. It's just happening illegally in the black market, either via these offshore websites or even your corner bookies. And wouldn't it be better if this was legalized and regulated and also taxed? And that's another place where we saw extremely high estimates from the industry as to how much states could benefit in terms of reaping tax dollars that in a lot of cases we found have not actually come to pass at the levels that the industry predicted. Right. And we'll get to that. But other than the Super Bowl, I think March Madness is the most remunerative event for the sports gambling industry. Have the states found that? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are definitely spikes during uh, closely watched sporting events. And the Super Bowl is a big one, and March Madness is the other. And the game, you know, the American Gaming Association does come out with these estimates as to how much. Uh, will be bet during these events. And, 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 and like I said, there is no question that sports betting is popular and that a lot of people do bet uh, generally and specifically during these events. So right now, 31 states, Washington, D.C., allow sports gambling. Five more are uh, have passed laws that will allow gambling in the future. You did a survey of a few of the states. Uh, I want to get into all that. But you're also an expert Uh, And you have a lot of experience just talking about lobbying. Was the lobbying to pass these kind of laws different from other kinds of lobbying? You've seen the concrete industry has lobbyists at every state house. Certainly with marijuana industry, they now have lobbying arms. Tech does. Is sports gambling different, bigger, better, more garish? Uh, it's it's different from existing industries like concrete or healthcare or pharma or what have you in that it's a new and disruptive industry. It's not too dissimilar in some ways from marijuana, which is also a new and disruptive industry or rideshare companies, which came in. And in some ways, it's maybe closer to rideshare than marijuana because marijuana was illegal. Uh, rideshare sort of fit into this gray area. There wasn't regulation that expressly addressed what it is that Uber or Lyft were trying to do. And so Uber and Lyft moved in and they sort of took advantage of that ambiguity and uncertainty and then tried to retroactively write laws that expressly allowed for it, or at least lobby against laws that would prohibit it. And so in some ways, sports betting is closer to that. It's also different, though, and unique in that essentially these sports betting companies, the sports books and some traditional casinos that have gotten into the business, as well as tribal casinos, are partnering with the states. They are essentially saying, like, we are in business together and we will we will make money and you will get a cut of that money that you can use to fund education or problem gambling, you know, detection, prevention and treatment or roads or what have you. And so what we found there was that some of the regulators treated the gambling industry different than or or they worked sort of in, in partnership and were not necessarily looking as to uh, as aggressively regulate or restrict the gambling industry. Because if they did so, the argument from the gambling industry, which was one that, that found traction with lawmakers, was it would hurt the state's bottom line. Yeah, I definitely want to get to that. But that one detail or the one thing that they would fund that you mentioned, oh, will also fund treatment for addicted gambling. It reminds me of the John Stewart joke about the power of religion is to undo all the terrible things that religion has wrought. Yeah, um, you know, there's there's also some comparisons with the with tobacco industry, frankly, in that like 
there there isn't a ton of public health scholarship, at least government supported public health scholarship about the potential risks and harms here. And so they the gambling industry has essentially argued to the states, again, rather convincingly, like, let us check, let us regulate, we'll monitor ourselves to the point where uh, we went to a uh, 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 conference put on by the National Council of Problem Gambling, the big national nonprofit group that is, as the name would suggest, uh, dedicated to minimizing the harms of of uh, problem and addictive gambling. And uh, first of all, it was sponsored by DraftKings. And we had a guy get up and say, it was actually a panelist get up and say critically that having a problem gambling conference sponsored by the gambling industry is like having an opioid conference, uh, opioid addiction conference sponsored by the Sackler family. Right. Uh, but we had the industry actually at this conference saying, this conference was attended by state regulators saying like, you need to give us some flexibility. We're, stu- we're still figuring out how gambling is going to work in these states. And if you put in a bunch of rules, it's going to make us hard, it make it harder for us to figure out sort of best practices as to how to minimize the harms here. And that was sort of a jaw dropping comment for me, both because it was stated explicitly and because the regulators seem receptive to it. Yeah. And uh, the alcohol industry definitely sponsors or, you know, puts money behind messages about responsible drinking. So I think with all these um, with all these vices that are regulated by the states, all these areas that are sometimes subject to sin taxes, that's a phenomenon we see quite clearly. So your story or among your stories to me, and this is not how the Times uh, and your editors framed it, was a tale of two jurisdictions. And you didn't really highlight what the New York experience has been. I mean, you referenced it, but you didn't go inside New York as much as you did Kansas. So first I want to talk about the bad face of gambling, a state legislature that left a lot of money on the table and I think got played by the industry. But then I want to contrast it with New York. So let's talk about Kansas. Kansans placed $350 million worth of bets in the period in the autumn that you were covering and reporting for the New York Times. Of the $350 million in bets, they collected less than $271,000 in taxes. Now, $350 million in bets, it's a little misleading because the amount placed in bets is not really, you, you don't tax the amount placed in bets, you would tax winnings. So what's called the handle, um, you would take just a small percentage of the total amount placed and the amount of money that actually changes hands is probably closer to 35 million, 350 million. But that's still a pittance. How did Kansas get played? Well, in two ways they got played. Number one, uh, to adopt the, your your wording, they um, they set the tax rate lower. That initially came in with a, a 20% uh, uh, proposal that would be 20% of the handle, as you as as um, an important distinction that you made. That is that the, whatever that whatever the companies would uh, make it collect uh, on these bets, then that the, they would pay 20% in taxes. The industry argued, as they do in a lot of these states, that actually. If if you set the tax rate that high, it's going to be very difficult for us to do business here. We're not going to be able to spend as much recruiting uh, new customers, and therefore people will probably just continue gambling illegally. So don't even do it or slash the tax rate, and it'll make it easier for us to set up legal gambling and pull people away from the illegal market. That's what Kansas did. They set the tax rate, I think it was at 10%. Uh, the other thing that they did was, and this is an argument that the something that the industry asked for in a number of states and that they got in Kansas, Kansas was 
to allow extensive write-offs for these promotional bets. These are the types of things that you see where it says deposit, you know, $100 in your DraftKings account and get $100 on us or a risk-free bet where if you bet your $1 on Memphis versus Philadelphia to be the uh, NBA Finals and you lose, we'll give you a dollar to incite credits to bet. And what the industry said is those should count as like, we should be able to write those off. If people win on those, we should be able to write that off and we wouldn't, and we won't pay taxes on those bets because that's promotional. Those are promotional efforts that are intended to sort of help, uh, help build the legal market. And so Kansas let them do that. And so there's a ton of, a ton of bets that are written off that they don't pay taxes on. And um, that's something that a lot of states, uh, you know, including Kansas, did at the behest of the industry. And that that mistake, that getting played by the gamblers, just as if Sky Masterson had made a bet that a jack of spades would jump out of a deck of cards and squirt cider in their ear. Kansas took that bet. As I say, they got played. And that mistake has cost them enormously. And I think... That example, which has been replicated in other states that allowed the gambling companies to take write-offs of their promotional uh, offers, that was such a giant mistake, it should have been the headline of the story. If not the literal headline of your four or five different pieces of the story, most of which are uh, items that I am a little more read in on this than most people, most of which I knew. But to me, it shows and highlights the importance of not just legal gambling versus uh, not passing a law, not just um, the ethics of it, but how you implement the legal gambling in your state is the difference between you lying to your voters, you creating a giveaway to companies, the difference between that and having something of an actual windfall as promised. It all comes down to execution. And that that was a key takeaway for me from your reporting. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something that... Uh is in the eyes of, of uh, you know, tax analysts, as well as people who are advocates for our problem gambling services, that was a missed opportunity because, you know, the only place that the, you know, that the, the, the problem gambling services are going to get funded is, for, or the logical place, I should say, is from the revenues that come from, you know, that come to the state from the, uh, you know, from the proceeds, from the taxes on sports betting. And if you're not collecting that much taxes, you're not going to have as much money to allocate towards problem gambling services. Yeah. And so to highlight, I would say a good way to do it, New York, as a New Yorker, I'll say perhaps slightly more sophisticated than the, uh, than the Sunflower State, than the, Jay, than the Jayhawks in Kansas. New York instituted their gambling rules without these giveaways to the gambling companies. And you had the figure after 10 months, well, the state just issued a press release. Governor Kathy Hochul today announced the state has collected more than 700 and $9 million in taxes on such bets, and they had $2 million in licensing fees, meaning the state has brought in $900 million, almost a billion dollars in gambling revenue, you know, divided by the 20 million people in the state. It means that everyone in New York made $50 on gambling last year, which is hard to do. The old line was the only way to make money on gambling is if you are the casino. In a way, just being a citizen of a state that executed this properly, we're now owning a piece of the casino. I think that's really important. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing that they did is they set the tax rate as at as high as 51%, and that's among the highest in the country. And that was something that the sports betting companies had predicted would be prohibitive. That would stifle the market. There's no way they could do business in a state with uh, uh, taxes that high. But they leveraged New York state lawmakers and Governor Andrew Cuomo at the time leveraged the, the, the market, the size of the market. Obviously, the sports books wanted to get into New York. It's one of the biggest markets among the most people, a very robust sports scene. And, um, and essentially Cuomo and the state lawmakers like called the sports books bluff. And they said, Oh yeah, we, we think that your desire to get into this market is going to be greater than any hesitation that you might have over this high tax rate. This is why I wanted to talk about the uh, states where they overestimate or came in over the industry's estimates versus the states where they came in under the entire, and I know you don't write the headlines, but the entire thesis or, or at least framing of the series was it was called a risky wager. Indeed it is. Why states were unprepared for the sports betting onslaught. You definitely point to some states that totally screwed it up. But since those states were the smaller states where there's going to be less revenue in general, and those were the states that the industry could put their heel to the neck of more, and the bigger states, well, California doesn't have legalized sports gambling, and New York is doing, I would say, really well, though it might be a time bomb of addiction. Overall, the picture painted in the series was that this isn't working out, but I think that there is a decent case that, especially if you look at the states that did it quote unquote right, and since they're the ones making the most money, overall, Americans are benefiting from legalized sports gambling in toto. Is that an unfair conclusion for me to draw? Uh, I mean, you have to separate it out. Like the risky bet framing uh, refers not just to the financial assessment and whether a, a given state has done it well and is sort of making, you know, uh, uh, achieving tax revenues as large as the industry predicted, but also, you know, the public health costs, uh, the, you know, yeah. gambling addiction and uh, 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 related bankruptcies. But on the tax revenue, would you say that if another state were thinking of legalizing sports gambling um, and having read your series, is the clear takeaway for a responsible legislator to be against legalizing sports gambling? Oh, I don't think there's a, a clear takeaway. Certainly, we weren't arguing, uh, you know, uh, against states legalizing. We were just, we were merely citing the, the you know, we, we were merely detailing the experiences that some of these states had and the disparate results that they have. So, you know, to your point, there is a blueprint for states to do this in a way that can yield, um, that, that can be financially profitable for the states. And, you know, I'm not going to get into like whether that is overall beneficial to the state at offset some of the public health concerns, but certainly, you know, New York does um, uh, sort of show how this can be done in a way that can make money for the state. Now, that said, the industry is very much against the New York model and is 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 lobbying to uh, retroactively reshape it and is lobbying to avoid other states that are, you know, that they're targeting, including some big ones. You mentioned California, but also Texas, Georgia. These are states that do not have legalized sports betting yet. And the industry is very keen to avoid those states adopting a model like New York's.
The last thing I want to ask you about while you have a couple more minutes is the is California and is the uh, amount of money spent on uh, lobbying. So the Times writes that since 2016, FanDuel and DraftKings have donated $2.6 million to state politicians and political parties, according to data maintained by Open Secrets. The companies, that's small, small change. The companies, though, have spent $114 million to try to influence state ballot measures. Now, I looked up or I just clicked on the link to Open Secrets and it didn't document $114 million. There was $80 million documented. I'm not gainsaying the fact that there is $114 million actually was spent. It's just not what's there on Open Secrets. But it shows that of... So what it did show was that $80 million was spent trying to influence state ballot initiatives. But if you look at which states these were spent in, of the $80 million documented, $70 million was spent in California and the ballot initiative went down. So what does that say about the power of money in on this issue if the vast majority was spent on a ballot initiative that didn't even pass? Uh, you know, first of all, I, I should say that like covering money in politics, I agree with your premise that like uh, money doesn't always buy elections. It, uh, and, and there are many other factors and the, the highest spending candidate is not always the candidate that wins and likewise for uh, ballot measures. But in this case in California, you had a pretty unique uh, situation where you had competing ballot initiatives, one that was sort of backed by the tribes, uh, the, the Indian tribes and their allies uh, who wanted to legalize sports betting in a way that would be beneficial to them that they would essentially have greater control over. Uh, and then one that was backed by DraftKings and FanDuel and uh, some of their allies. And so the thinking there was that the, they kind of canceled each other out and they cannibalized mm-hmm. each other. You know, polls show that uh, sports betting is popular, including in California, and people would like to do it legally. But there was a lot of confusion and a lot of, you know, frankly, kind of aggressive somewhat uh, cynics might call dirty politics in this uh, in this fight over the ballot initiative in California. And so it's a little bit of an anomaly, but it also shows how much of a sort of coveted holy grail for the industry that being able to legalize and break into the California market is. Ken Vogel is a Washington-based reporter for the New York Times who investigates the confluence of money, politics, and influence. And he was a lead reporter on the New York Times series, A Risky Wager. Thank you so much, Ken. It was a pleasure. Some families were born into. Some families are made from the ones we meet along the way. Our families are built on love and traditions, the memories we share, and knowing that life is better because we're together. Pure Life, 100% pure quality water, refreshing every moment together. Visit purelifewater.com and discover where to buy Pure Life. Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60%. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring D.C., Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash sharefares to book. Restrictions may apply. And now the spiel. When you're a ratings agency named Moody's and you give a downgrade... It's hard not to evoke everything gray, gloomy, and depressing 
especially when it comes to this specific news. Now, yesterday, the credit rating agency put six U.S. banks on review for potential credit rating downgrades. Signature Bank was also given a C rating by Moody's yesterday as well. And today, the disconsolate Moody's, or maybe clear-eyed Moody's, downgraded the entire sector. Banking went from stable to negative in Moody's ratings. Indeed, it is a downer, literally and figuratively. But it's not a crisis, not yet, I don't think, though there is big anti-bailout sentiment. There's also the reality that if you allow more small banks or small-ish banks to fail, there'll only be big banks left, banks that really are too big to fail. And then it will be Citi, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase giving the U.S. the upgrades or the downgrades, not the other way around. Anyway, the investors in the Silicon Valley Bank already did fail. The board of directors failed. They're out of jobs. The bank's closed. They're not making a profit. It's depositors who shouldn't be ruined by this, I don't think. Of course, since every bit of data that arrests our attention these days has to be processed through the stupidest pre-existing prisms, this ordeal has been portrayed as a death match between crony capitalism and wokeism. Neither actually apply to this situation. This is not a case of the fat cats getting fatter or subsidizing moral hazards. It's allowing depositors who did essentially nothing wrong to be able to meet their payroll obligations and access their deposits. It's like when a citizen who's doing nothing wrong is hit by a flood or a hurricane. That's what a depositor in Silicon Valley Bank is like. Though, of course, although such a person generally cuts a less sympathetic figure, the SVB investor, than the natural disaster victim. But both were victimized, and their continued victimization would be worse than the medicine of taxpayer assistance. And the wokeism, the anti-ESG explanation? Oh, just stop, guys. The banks failed because of numbers to the right of the decimal point. Interest rate hikes coming quickly, moving borrowing costs higher and higher. That doomed this institution and others like it. The interest rate hikes, just like the bailout, I think they too are a necessary medicine. But they were damaging to a mid-sized bank whose depositors were mostly the kind of clients, tech entrepreneurs who themselves are prone to disinvest when interest rates raise. So it was a double whammy. Quickly raising interest rates caused the bank's balance sheets to be worse, and they also caused the other thing that could have saved the bank's depositors putting money in, they caused that to stop. It was not good, not good, the double whammy. Unlike the Oscars, which were dominated by everything everywhere all at once, which was a septuple whammy winner of seven awards. All those awards, Oscars, nary a Nobel in physics, or NBA sixth man trophy in sight. Outrageous. More people saw the ceremony than last year. Here's how pop culture podcaster John Campea put it. Not only did the Oscars for the second year in a row see their viewership go up, it is the highest rated of any award show over the past three years, so seems recovering from that pandemic gut punch that it took. Yes, the Oscar ratings were up by 12% over last year, which, as Campea framed it, was in accordance with headlines like that in Axios. Oscars viewership jumps to three-year high in The Hollywood Reporter. TV ratings, Oscars rise to three-year high. True, but this headline from The Guardian was equally true. Oscar ratings rise to third worst ever. I'm glass half everywhere all at once on this. I have to say, 
as a person who wants to be entertained and more importantly wants to be entertaining, I was pretty offended a few years ago when the Oscars rather imperiously decided that they didn't need to actually have an entertainer hosting their ceremony. And this was after Kevin Hart was bounced over bad tweets and old routines. Ratings cratered. They rose again slightly, but then were absolutely pummeled by the slog of a hectoring hostless ceremony during the depths of the pandemic. It took place in a train station that met the shared moment of social ennui with, ah, what you people need is a dollop more of despair or several dollops. I don't even know why I cared so much about this. I mean, a monologue and a few other jokes sprinkled throughout a four-hour ceremony is a fairly inefficient way to experience mirth, is it not? I think it was my reading of the message that was being communicated behind hostlessness, behind entertainment deficient Oscars. It was, I interpret it as, the entertainment industry collectively saying, how dare you seek enjoyment? And from us, of all people, that you would turn to us to entertain you, we, as your conscience. Huh. Okay, it's probably an overreading, I'll admit that. Okay, it's definitely an overreading. And we do have to admit that all over-the-air entertainment has been hurt by the fracturing of society, all all except the Super Bowl and uh, every other football game and the collective viewership totals of presidential debates. Huh, maybe all TV that radically reinterpreted its mission as not to be entertaining, maybe that has cratered. Also, we could point a finger at presidential debates as being overly entertaining. That probably helped their ratings. But it's good to see Jimmy Kimmel go for laughs and get laughs, and the result being a slightly more successful ceremony than the four-hour dour fests we had been subject to. And sure, I'll also acknowledge that maybe the increase in ratings, the 12.12% increase in ratings, the real lesson is if one year... One of the world's most famous people smacks another very famous celebrity on live television. The next year, people will tune into that show out of curiosity. But maybe the message is more like people will be entertained by that which at least attempts to be entertaining. And we do need collective experiences that result in some form of uplift because Lord knows the normally fun-filled banking sector is no longer delivering the thrills. That's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is vice president of philanthropy at Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. I also want to say that I am happy to see that Nicole Kidman has finally been released from that abandoned AMC. <laughs> where she has been held captive for almost two full years now. It's good to have you back, Nicole. And thank you for encouraging people who were already at the movie theater to go to the movie theater. (laughs) Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase.
Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.